0: As I began to grow up and began to see life from different perspectives, I began to realize that in my own life, I held up so many things before God as, as my righteousness. You ever heard the phrase, anything you can do, I can do better? Well, that's the story of my life. Anything I could boast before others, I would hold that out before them. As I'd see someone and someone else that they would do well, I would try to find a way in which I could make myself greater than them. And that comes ultimately from a heart of sin which rebels against God and does not desire to see who God is. But I'm so thankful that I had parents from a very early age who continually told me that Christ died for sins. And by God's grace and through his spirit, he allowed me to realize that the beauty and glory and righteousness of Jesus Christ far surpasses anything that I could ever uphold against anyone else. Any measly thing that I have that is a talent or ability of mine is nothing compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is accredited to those who, by faith, bank all of their lives on him. So my boast this evening before you is none of my abilities, none of anything that I have, but simply Jesus Christ and himself alone is my sacrifice for my sins. And it is this gospel that we desire to share in Spain. We go as sinners two sinners with a glorious message that many of them have never heard. And so we go with confidence knowing that the Lord will do his work and as much as he's worked in our own lives. Spain appears like a very, very hard country, but the Holy Spirit works through any one of us, including ourselves. And so we move forward with this glorious gospel and desiring to share it with as many people as we can. So would you pray with us that the Lord would move in the hearts of many people that he might break their stone-cold hearts and might see a church-planting movement begun, that leaders would begin to arise within the Spanish church and, and truly see a network of churches begun in some cities that do not have the gospel today. I desire to go with you to the Word today. Would you turn with me to 2 Peter Chapter 1? I'd like to consider together the nature of our authoritative witness as we move forward and evangelism. As we turn there together, would you also join me in a word of prayer? Our glorious Father, you have created the world, and you've created each one of us simply to serve you, to love you, and to know you intimately. And we thank you that by your good grace that you've given us your scriptures that we open here this evening in order that we might hear from you. You have verbally allowed us to hear your voice through the words of Scripture. So, Fathers, we hear them once again. May they be fresh to us. May they be alive in our ears, that we may move forward confidently, knowing that your word has been spoken. Father, may your Spirit, which penned these words, work in our hearts, that you might open our hearts, so that we might be able to live forth a life that demonstrates the beauty of your gospel at work in us. Lord, may we look more like Christ because of what we see in your word this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1898, four years after the World Fair in Paris, Chicago had its own turn to host the World Fair. In the late 20th century, late 19th century and early 20th century, all across the world, large cities and capitals hosted these world fairs, where the Industrial Revolution really took off. All the inventions that people came up with were shown at these world fairs. Many had seen Mr. Eiffel's Great Tower in Paris just four years prior. And now in Chicago, many wanted to see Mr. Ferris's even larger and taller wheel that you could ride. Invitations were sent to virtually every nation of the world, summoning them to come to the World Fair in Chicago. Well, one country, Algeria, was one that received this invitation, asking for officials and dignitaries and common folk to come see the sights and the sounds of the World Fair. Well, hundreds of Algerians all got on a boat, officials and dignitaries, and set sail in hope that they would see the sights and the sounds of this world fair. When they arrived on the shores here in North America, they were met with some unbelievable news. You see, they had arrived one year too early. You see, a misunderstanding in the cablegram that was sent in 1891 to the Algerian country led to these people to believe that the fair in Chicago would happen in 1891 rather than 1892. These people had expected to see some incredible sights and sounds in Chicago. Instead, they were met with a cold, hard winter in America's northeast shores. Hope, without certainty, is absolutely useless. The hope that these Algerians had pales in comparison to our own hope that we have, that one day Christ will return at his second coming in judgment over the nations to set up his reign here on this earth. This second coming is our hope that though we will be ushered out from here first, we will return with Christ and all of his splendor and glory. He will return to set up his kingdom as the apostle Peter penned this first chapter, he confronts. Some false teachers who, early on, began to deny Christ's second coming. Only three decades removed from Christ's ascension, several would say, as it says in chapter 3, that the world will always go on as it always has. He'll never return. It simply is the way that it is. But Peter realizes that he is in a battle concerning authority. His own authority and the message that he has had to them and has given to them is significant enough that what the false teachers are saying is incredibly hurtful. You see, it's not simply denying the second coming, for when you deny the second coming, you deny judgment over sin. If you deny judgment over sin, sin is meaningless. The sacrifice of Christ is pointless. So Peter does not brush this aside and desires to confront it head on. As we move forward to Spain, we realize that we are in a struggle and a battle over authority. In our world today, we're becoming increasingly aware of the opinion that it's just simply your ideas against my ideas. It's this man's opinion versus this man's opinion. They're all on equal ground. It ultimately doesn't matter. But if you're going to move forward to your neighbor and to your friends, and to your family, and say that this is truth, you better have something upon which you bank upon which is truly authoritative. If it's just simply your opinion against someone else's opinion, it's only an argument to be won. But I believe that as Peter shares with us in verses 16 to 21, that the nature of his authoritative witness is far beyond anything that is simply opinion. Look with me if you would ...when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy... ...whereunto ye do well that ye take heed... ...as unto a light that shineth in a dark place... ...until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture... ...is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man... The holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As you see there beginning in verse 16, the Apostle Peter begins to uphold what he saw at the transfiguration. On that mountain of transfiguration where Christ was transfigured into all the glory and splendor of God. He holds that up as proof that the second coming actually will happen. The false teachers deny the second coming, and he says, What I have seen and I have heard with my own eyes prove that this will actually come. He begins by saying that what his message was concerning that transfiguration time was not following cunningly devised fables. It was no myth that he simply made up and moved on to tell these people. We've all heard of fables concerning St. Nick or Paul Bunyan. There's a semblance of truth in them. There's actually a real person. But beyond that, the things we know about them, all the actions that have been made up, are are really far beyond what actually happened in space and time. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us if the resurrection did not happen in space and time, then we are hopeless. The resurrection is futile to us if these things did not actually happen. And so here the apostle Peter says it's it's not a myth. It's not a myth, for it wasn't just me. Do you remember who was there? He says, "We were eyewitnesses. James and John also were on that mountain seeing Jesus Christ." The apostle John as he writes his gospel says, "And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." The apostle Paul and the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter had seen Jesus Christ in a way entirely different than they'd ever seen him before. They had seen Jesus perform miracles on the streets of Jerusalem. They had seen him preach. They'd heard him preach on the shores of Galilee. But when they saw him transformed in all of his radiance and glory, they saw something entirely different. His garments glistened like the sun. His face shone brightly, as the Gospels tell us. You see, this Mount of Transfiguration is a preview of that second coming. Peter is entirely convinced that if he saw these things with his own eyes, if he heard the voice of God himself, that that is a preview that Christ will actually come back in all of His splendor and glory and reign here on this earth. And by God's grace, we have a multiplicity of witnesses here who speak to us the truth concerning Christ. Imagine if you wanted to become a Muslim today. You would have to take the witness of simply one man, Muhammad. Imagine if you wanted to become a Mormon this evening. You'd have to take the witness of one man, Joseph Smith. But God in his goodness allows us to see that there are consistency of a message amongst all these men. They all say the same thing. They all saw Jesus Christ in the same way. Peter says it's as real as it can get. He not only saw Christ's transfiguration, but he heard the Father's proclamation. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He calls the Father the, the excellent glory. Do you see how he depicts the Father and Jesus as being one? One in essence, though different in person. Here you have the Father in all of his excellent glory. And here is Jesus Christ in all of his majesty. Do you get this? That God, the Father, who is, has more full pleasure than any other person, who has more purity than any being, looks upon one man, Jesus Christ, and says, upon him I look with my full pleasure. Upon who else could the Father look with his entire pleasure? Christian, if you're here this morning and God the Father looks upon you with pleasure, it is because he looks upon the Son with pleasure because of his righteousness which is imputed to you, which is given to your account, you can therefore have the full pleasure of the Father. You can therefore have a reconciled relationship with God the Father himself. By faith we are connected to Jesus Christ so that the one upon whom these words were said can now be said to us. Peter had heard these words with his own ears, and he did not want to get it wrong this time. you remember Peter the first time? He saw Elijah and Moses. What did he want to do? He wanted to build a tabernacle for each one of these. But after being rebuked by Jesus Christ himself, this passage tells us that he got the point. Where is Elijah and Moses now? It's simply Jesus Christ and all of his splendor and glory. He saw that, so this will happen. The authoritative witness that Peter holds up is something that really digs into reality as we know it. It is in space and time, things that are very tangible, things that can be seen, and things that can be heard. But he doesn't stop there. He calls some more to the witness stand. He calls the prophets. Look what he says, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. I hope you begin to feel the weight of needing an authority upon which to bank your witness. If you are going to go to someone with whom you have a difficult relationship and tell them, that they are sinners, and that they are in need of God's grace, and much as you are, they're going to simply laugh in your face. If you're going to go to someone with whom you don't really have a relationship at all, you just simply met them for the first time, and you're going to tell that person that all they've been thinking their entire life is completely askew, and that what you think and what you say is right, you better have an authority. Well, Peter says, it's not something that simply happened to me and my friends, and we all got it right consistently. No, there have been prophets who have been saying the exact same thing over and over again. He says we have an even more sure word of prophecy, or other translations say an even more reliable prophecy, which points us to the same conclusion. That though the apostles have been saying it, the prophets have been talking about the day of the Lord for centuries. Joel and Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah, each have been saying the exact same thing. Each one of them have been saying that the day of the Lord of hosts is very terrible. That the day of the Lord of hosts comes against those who are high and mighty, as Isaiah says. Against those who are high and lifted up, for they will be brought low. Joel says that the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? These men have been speaking the exact same message throughout the centuries, and the apostolic teaching is simply the same as the prophets. The question we must ask ourselves, if if you don't want to take the apostles' word, false prophets, then are you going to also negate the witness of prophets who have been saying this for centuries. What's amazing is if the prophets foretold Christ's two comings and they got the first one entirely right, down to the minutia of everything they said, do you not think that they would also get the second coming right? If we're going to have an authoritative witness that leads us to share the gospel with others, we must also begin to ask ourselves, Are we simply going to take the words of some former fishermen, some former shepherds? So these men got consistently the message right. Are you going to move forward into hostile territories? Are you going to send missionaries to places where people do not want to hear the gospel simply upon the words of these men? Ancient men who lived far beyond us, who did not have the access to the education we did, Are you going to bank your hopes and your life and your trust on these men's words by themselves? I think, thankfully, God allowed verses 20 and 21 to be written. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, these two verses change the game entirely. For you see, Peter is saying, it is not simply what I saw on the mountain of transfiguration. It's not simply those who followed Christ along with me, and we saw the same things, and we've written the same things. It's not simply that there have been others whom which we are following after, and the prophets and speaking the exact same message. No. Everything that we have said and that they have said has now been also come alongside by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit superintended everything that these men wrote, the final product we have before us today in Scripture is of far superior quality than anything else we could have ever imagined written down before us. This is no mere book, this is not mere literature. This is the very words of God. It says there that these prophets did not have their own private interpretation. It's not as if Isaiah saw these visions and then conjured up some idea of what these things meant. These men did not have dreams and then get up in the morning and think, all right, what am I going to write about today? Now, these men put forth great effort in writing some incredible things for us. But it's even beyond some of the greatest literature in the world. It is the very words of God for these holy men spoke and wrote, ultimately, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If the Holy Spirit of God has the character of God and that he's entirely pure and without error, we can be sure and convinced that everything we have before us is not only consistent, but entirely without error and reliable. We can't actually take these pages of Scripture before us and not simply have the witness of a number of men who have been saying the exact same things, but say that these pages before us are actually from God himself. Do you see how that is so incredibly important for our authority as we share the gospel with us, with others? Do you see how important it is for us to even use the words and pages of Scripture in evangelism? Over the last few years, I've had the opportunity in, in our church up in Minneapolis to be one of the small group leaders. We meet on the first Sunday nights of the month with a small group. There's about 12 different groups, and my group would always come over to our home, and what we try to do is uh, review the morning message, and then we'll have some kind of evangelistic focus, some kind of uh, endeavor that we seek to accomplish over the next 12 months. Each group will come up with different ideas, and we try to figure out how we can reach our community. Well, this last year, I led our group, into doing this evangelistic endeavor. I asked each one of them to consider one person, one unbeliever that they knew in their life, that they would simply ask the question if they would mind having a Bible study with them. We began in September, began praying towards people, began thinking about what we would use in the Bible study. But by May 1st, each one of us had to ask one person, would you mind having a Bible study with me? And to our surprise, Not one person rejected everyone who asked them to have a Bible study. We often think that people around us would never want to have a Bible study with us. But you see, if we would allow the very words of Scripture, which are authoritative, to speak to people who have more than likely never read the pages of Scripture, we can see amazing things happen. I have a good friend also by the name of Scott who I've known over the last few years, and it was him who I asked, to have a Bible study with me. As many others, he rejected Scripture. But I said, have you ever read Scripture? And he said, not really, never really gotten around to it. So I said, okay, let's just open it up. Do you care meeting with me? Would you prove me wrong and uh, just see what Scripture says? And he agreed, of course, fine, I'll do that. And so we opened Scripture every Thursday night for four weeks. We began in John chapter 1 and made our way through John chapter 4. And by the time he got to John chapter 4, Christ had entirely changed Scott's life. Well, before he saw Jesus Christ as simply a man with some kind of teaching that he didn't really know much about. Now he knew Jesus Christ as the perfect lamb who made a sacrifice for the sins that he commits daily. Just two weeks ago, I had the joy and privilege of baptizing him in our church and to join our body of believers in Minneapolis. It is amazing what God's Word can do if we would simply open up before believers. I challenge you, each one of you, consider one person in your life, one unbelieving person who you have some kind of relationship with them, and simply ask them, would you mind having a Bible study with me? To your surprise, I can almost guarantee that most people will say yes. Fathers, leaders in this room, would you lead your families in this? Would you lead and show your family how it is we can engage with others through Scripture? Don't make it an argument when we go to others and want to share about Jesus Christ. Simply say, what does this say? Surely, as Pastor mentioned this morning, we can have many kinds of arguments to rebut some of the crazy things that are said of us. But ultimately, it's what God says that matters And we presuppose that what he says is true. Would you open the words of Scripture with someone this week, with someone this month, and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ as they have never heard it before? As we go to Spain, we want to do this. We want to go to a city where we be able to build relationships with people and to at some point in time be able to say, would you mind looking at Scripture for yourself? Many of them come from Catholic backgrounds and assume that this is God's word, but have never cracked a Bible. We pray that the Lord would allow us to open these pages and to show them something that is entirely different than they've ever heard before. Would it not be appropriate that the Holy Spirit, who opens people's hearts, would also be the one who has an influence in their salvation by the very words that he penned? But as we get to Spain, we understand that there are many who at the very beginning will say, I don't even want to look at Scripture. That's good for you, but that's not fine for me. Or I don't even believe that that's God's word. If they're more atheistic than Catholic, they may say those very things. The question you might have is, well, what do we do then? Does evangelism stop? Is there a roadblock in the way of sharing the gospel with others when they say no? Well, I think Scripture tells us how we can actually move forward. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 1 as we conclude this evening. I hope to encourage you as you attempt to live this out in your life, as you attempt to think of that one person with whom you can open the words of Scripture with and share with them the gospel, how can you do it with those who you might in your mind think will tell me no right away? In Romans chapter 1, we see one of the most bleak passages of Scripture. At the beginning of this incredible message of the gospel in Romans, we see this picture of humanity, which is utterly disgusting before God. God says this about us. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You see, from this passage we come to understand that every person who has ever been born, every person who has breathed one breath on this planet, has a high hand against God himself. Though all of creation around us points upward to God himself and saying that he is the creator and that he sits in judgment over us as Lord, these people deny that entirely and hold themselves up or some other created thing as their God. And so here the Apostle Paul tells us that everyone suppresses the truth. Everyone suppresses the truth the truth. Do you see how that gives us hope? There there is no atheist who is on neutral ground with us. There is no your opinion and my opinion. Scripture tells us that there is truth which everyone either assents to or suppresses in their own life. You may have someone who tells you at the beginning, I don't want to do that, or that's not God's word, Or, that's fine for you, but not for me. But we can have confidence and hope moving forward, continually asking them, continually loving them, simply because we know that we're not on neutral ground. There is some truth that they suppress before God. But it goes further than that. Look at verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. See, the Apostle Paul says that not only do they suppress all that they see around them and uphold some other idol, but their thinking gets completely askew starting on a wrong foundation and not seeing God as the creator and judge of the world, all of their thinking, everything that they build on that is completely off. They are futile in the way that they think. We can completely see this in our postmodern world. A world that says there is completely no right and wrong. There is no moral order that we live in. But there is no way that you can live that way. If you have a friend who says that, you might at some point, after you have a relationship with them, ask them a few questions. If there is no right and wrong, what happens when someone runs a red light and nails your mother or your daughter? Is that right or wrong? What happens if someone brutally hurts someone in your family? Is there right or wrong? We know from life, we know from common sense that there is a moral order which God has ordained. And because every one of us falls short of that standard and sin, that we face a judgment at the last day. But by God's grace, he has given us hope and that in Jesus Christ we have a sacrifice which can free us from the guilt with which we all have. We can go to people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness and share with them how their futile thinking is completely contrary to all of creation, which God upholds as a witness to his good character. When my brother and I used to travel around with our parents on deputation and furlough, we used to play this silly game, probably like six or seven at the time. I would take this small ball and put it in my hand. And give it to my brother. And my brother is a couple years younger than I am. And he would take his two hands and try to pry off my fingers until finally that ball came loose. I think this is a picture of exactly what happens. They suppress the truth by their tentacles of their unrighteousness so that the ball can hardly even be seen. They run to so many unrighteous things in their life that the truth that they know is completely distorted because their life is so out of whack. But by God's grace, we can come alongside of these sinners like us and say that this sin, which is marring everything in life, is simply a mask over what you know to be true. And we can sit down with them, look at them eye to eye, and say, you know that God exists and that God reigns over you and that you have sinned before him. But there is a glorious Savior who we know in whom you can bank your entire life. We move forward to Spain in confidence, knowing that we have an authoritative witness. We have these pages of Scripture which tell us we can actually move forward in situations that seem so far beyond anything we could ever do. But allow me to encourage you here, where you are in a situation where you have many unsaved friends and family, possibly with whom you have a difficult relationship Or with those around you at your work, which you don't have a deep relationship with, but you would somehow like to share the gospel with them. Move forward boldly in confidence. Take God's word and allow it to speak to them. By God's grace, he's given us these pages of scripture which allow us to be able to open them up and to say in unique ways, far beyond any words we could ever tell anyone else, the amazing truth of what God has done for us. He is glorious, his king is amazing, and he has given us something that is worthy to tell others about. I encourage you, by God's grace, move forward and share this glorious message with others. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for you have not left us in our sin. You have not left us to receive your wrath as we've read this evening. But you have allowed us to be able to know you through your son, Jesus Christ, and to have your spirit living within us and molding us and shaping us into his likeness. Father, I thank you for this congregation here who so faithfully is a beacon of light to this community here. But I pray for each one of them individually, Father, that you may allow them to move forward boldly, to be leaders amongst this community, that they might say that you reign, and that your gospel is what changes our lives. I thank you, Father, that you've not left us alone in this endeavor, but that we can use your very words, the words which you intended, the words which you wrote in our efforts to do this. God, give us the grace that we need to be able to confront those who are in sin like us, that they might also receive forgiveness of sins. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.